With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you guys for joining us this week. We had a powerful show yesterday, no doubt about that. Great to have you guys with us. We've got another one today. We're going to go through some of the biggest stories uh, internationally uh, over the next two hours. We'll be broadcasting live and direct to you globally, and we're going to be covering uh, not just the Middle East. Of course, we'll get essential updates uh, from that in the first hour from our great friend and trusted commentator, Basil Valentine, is going to be joining us uh, in hour number one. Uh, but also we'll be going over to look at the great unraveling. There's no other way to describe it. The great unraveling of Ukraine. And it's happening quick, a lot quicker than we thought. But uh, the telltale signs were all there. You've got discontent. You've got backstabbing, palace intrigue, all the rest of it happening in Kiev as we speak. And Arno Develay is going to be joining us from Moscow uh, in the second hour. He's an independent journalist and also an international human rights lawyer. Of course, Arno has a very good uh, inside track on so many of these different issues. He'll be able to tell us what's going on uh, behind the scenes in Kiev and right now and in Moscow too. So we look forward to that conversation to get some hardcore geopolitics on to the table uh, as we love to do on this program. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat room. Hope you guys are doing well, recovered from your Thanksgiving weekend. If you're in America, you've probably been loading up on the calories and the sugar and hopefully not too much booze as well. That's actually sugar, by the way. Little health tip. A glass of wine is like eating four Snicker bars. Uh, just to let you know, uh, there's no such thing as a low-cal diet. Don't let those French uh, men prancing through the woods with baguettes and bottles of Beaujolais Nouveau fool you. They look spry and fit, but in the West, that will turn into calories very quickly. Just saying. That's our health moment for today. Over to Russia right now. Now, a couple of high-ranking Russian officials, uh, including the deputy foreign minister, have accused the United States of trying to orchestrate a coup in Russia. What exactly are they talking about here? Sergei uh, Rybkov, Sergei Rybkov accused Washington, the deep state of Washington, the CIA, etc., of supporting a change in leadership in the country through various proxies. Nothing here it surprises anybody, but why is this happening now? Why is this announcement happening now? There has to be some sort of an outcome on the horizon. Why would the U.S. be meddling now if indeed this is true? Now, the U.S. have increasingly focused on stirring unrest. There's no doubt about that in Russia. There's all sorts of opposition figures like Alexei Navalny and so forth. These people they've uh, raised up as the, quote, opposition leader in Russia, even though they don't really have any support, or at least the, maybe nothing more than a few percentage points on the political spectrum. Uh, but Washington and London increasingly locking horns on so many different issues. And this is what Ribikov said in the deputy FM in Moscow. The U.S. has not only waged a hybrid war on Russia, but it's also demonstrating an increasing focus on the change of leadership here, organizing an internal Russian coup. And it's no surprise that the United States 
and its allies, Britain, they want to get rid of Vladimir Putin or make life so difficult for him that he won't be able to uh, run the country. Listen, running Russia is not a small task. This is a country that has, has fending off attacks on multiple fronts. Uh, it straddles two continents. It's Well, it's the longest continuous landmass of a country in the world. So obviously it requires a lot, plus it's under direct uh, attack and is surrounded by NATO, in fact. So Russia requires strong leadership. It requires strong, competent, intelligent leadership. Vladimir Putin, of course, arguably this is going to go down in history as the greatest Russian leader of all time. So, And that will trump even Soviet leadership. That's how history will view Vladimir Putin. Of course, probably the longest standing leader. Uh, it won't be for long uh, that he'll have that crown, I think, if, unless he already does. But he is effectively the czar de facto. Uh, and whether you like or agree or regard Russia as a democratic system, the fact remains that in a country like Russia, and here's the thing you got to understand, and this is the thing that most people don't get. People living in the West, I've said this before, it's worth repeating. People living in the West have become so cynical about their political leadership. They loathe their political leadership. Uh, they're waiting for something new to come along. This is what our elections in America are. It's like a giant school election. It's like it's like the high school presidency just scaled up to a national level. That's or for, you know, head of the fraternity or sorority, or whatever. That's U.S. politics. It's a and the USA Today and uh, our newspapers are like giant school newspapers. So we are so cynical. And we really have lost faith. Our approval ratings of our leadership, look at Biden's approval rating. I think he's, he's drowning under 30% right now, as if that's even possible. I mean, what, what, you don't have to do much to get above a 40% approval rating in America. To drop below 30, you really have to be a disaster, because that means even your Democrat stalwarts, your loyal rank and file have thrown you under the bus, Joe. Okay, now look at Canada, Justin Trudeau, equally highly unpopular. You can tell he didn't even get a, doesn't even have an electoral mandate with his coalition. Look at Rishi Sunak, an appointed prime minister, not even elected. Okay, look at Emmanuel Macron, not popular at all, approval rating probably hovering around 30%. And the, and the list goes on, Olaf Scholz in Germany and so forth. So we're so cynical. Look at Australia, look at New Zealand. Look at these countries, especially in the Anglosphere. We're so cynical about our political leadership. So, in other words, the bar is so low. And if a populist rolls around and says something different, and you know, you can even be a television reality TV actor. Look at Donald Trump. They show up. It's something new, something novel. People are like, yeah, I'll have him. Or Gert Wilders in uh, in Netherlands. Okay, we're gonna get rid of the immigrants, whatever. So, it's touching the populist buttons. So we become so cynical. So our bar, our standard is so low. And from an imperial hyperpower, a hegemon like the United States, it's um, you know exerting its muscle around the world and it's it's beating everybody over the head, intimidating and doing international racketeering. And so why, why does it matter? You've got the deep state in charge. That's what people believe. Why does it matter who's president? Why does it matter? So hence, our bar is low. Yes, Joe Biden's senile, but he's got good people around him. How many times have I heard that? How many times have I heard that? It's so cynical. So what is our bar? It's incredibly low 
for our leadership. Now go over to a country like Russia. Russia is the target of Western hyperpower, okay, of, of NATO encirclement. And throughout history, it has been, uh, it's, it's attempted to have been invaded by multiple despots from Adolf Hitler to imperial hegemons of the day like Napoleon and so forth. And from the East, the barbarian hordes, the Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, everybody has overrun or run over Russia in an attempt to subdue it at some point in history. And so, and they've taken heavy losses through all of this, much more than the United States could ever take at home. If you discount the Civil War in the mid-1900s, put that to the side as an internal dispute. I'm talking about international challengers. Russia has plenty. Hence, the bar for leadership, especially after the disaster of the 1990s with Boris Yeltsin, is incredibly high. It's much higher. So no one in the West, they want to project this kind of wishy-washy democracy narrative on Russia, saying, well, why can't they have a, uh, a senile, dysfunctional, alcoholic leader uh, like we have? Or some sort of a you know, malcontent or... You know, somebody who just doesn't even have the leadership skills full stop. Well, why, why can't, because that's democracy, and then change them over every four years. That's not acceptable for the Russians. They have a much higher standard for leadership, must be strong, must be knowledgeable in economics, must be fluent in history, foreign policy, uh, must understand technology, science, and how to develop and drive uh, a developing economy forward in the 21st century, and stave off imperialist attacks coming from all directions. That's the standard. So that takes a special individual uh, in Russia. Keep George Soros and the NGOs out and all the other jackals in the globalist international system who'd like to get their hands in there like they did during the 1990s, like Bill Browder and these sort of cats. Just rape, pillage, and suck all the life out of the country and the economy. That's the Russia the West wants. Weak, incompetent, and open for pillaging, basically. So that's why this is a different conversation that's happened in, in the East as opposed to the West. So they, you, Vladimir Putin is all of those things. He takes all of those boxes. And look at the success Russia's had in Syria in staving off the dirty war against Syria being waged by the U.S. and its allies in Israel. Uh, success there. Success in Ukraine in the biggest proxy war waged by NATO against Russia in history. Success, it, it seems to be. So what do you have on the Western side? Failures in Afghanistan, failures in Iraq, failures in Yemen, failure in Libya, and the list goes on. Failure in Ukraine. The list goes on and on and on. So you can see there's a big gulf in expectations. So when it comes to managing expectations in Russia with the electorate, what they accept as their leader, and managing expectations in the West, and what we like and accept, we prefer Saturday Night Live skits with Alec Baldwin, just taking the piss out of everybody. And that to us is a good democracy. We think this is great. The spitting image of the democratic system, we think that's wonderful. And who cares about the policies and the dysfunctional economy and the overseas adventurisms and flirting with World War III? 
we can always sit back and have a laugh about it on Saturday, watching Saturday Night Live every weekend or listening to uh, the John Stewart's or Stephen Colbert's of the world making a mockery of the whole thing. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? That's Western democracy, ladies and gentlemen. And that is my two cents for the first part of this hour. But we're going to take a break and get into some serious discussions about updates from the Middle East with our friend and cohort, Basil Valentine. Stake around. We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT Radio. The light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. Then I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT, Today's News Talk. Great to have you guys with us. Whether you're listening on the audio streams, of which there are many, or the TNT live audio stream, or you're watching us in Vision, in glorious Technicolor, uh, on the YouTube live stream, or any of the other platforms we'll be streaming on, there'll be more coming uh, in that department, so do keep your eyes peeled for that. Great to have you guys with us, wherever you are, but especially if you are hanging out and decamped into to the TNT chat room community right now. Hello, everybody in there. I haven't had time to interact with you guys in the last couple of days, but we'll endeavor to do more during the show. We just got our hands full. There's so much to talk about, and especially with breaking news right now. I mean, over the weekend uh, was really a game changer, I think. At least, wow, it was a, a sigh of relief to see hostages being reunited with their families and uh, some absolutely touching scenes uh, we've seen, especially on the Palestinian side, uh, but uh, on the Israeli side as well, the Western media has been all over that, covering it wall to wall, Israeli hostages, the few of them anyway, being reunited with their families. But uh, the the Palestinian side, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, for for all the hostages that have been released by Israel in its series of prisons, all the children and things that have been released, they have incarcerated and abducted 
and taken more hostages than have been released in the last four days, believe it or not, basically nullifying the total number there, which is now sort of hovering around 9,000. I will stand corrected if I'm wrong in any of my statistics with our next guest, Mr. Basil Valentine, joining us right now uh, to give us some updates on this situation. Uh, Basil, I assume you've been following this pretty closely, as you have been from the very beginning of this crisis. And what do you make of the last four days, this uh, temporary truce, this ceasefire, this talk that is going to be extended for a few more days? Because apparently this bit about exchanging hostages seems to be very popular uh, with people on both sides. Your thoughts, Mr. Valentine? Yeah, it makes a change, obviously, from the endless bombardment. Um, of course, the damage has been done. Let's not forget that, you know, northern Gaza has been laid waste. Thousands of people have been murdered. Uh, an even greater number have been mutilated. You know, lots of children have lost legs and things. This is all sort of glossed over in the corporate media. Uh, so while it's obviously very welcome news that the bombardment has stopped and there's been an exchange of hostages, um, we're a long, long, long way from any kind of permanent settlement or agreement. Uh, as we speak, the head of Mossad and the head of the CIA are in Doha, Qatar, for talks about extending the ceasefire. Interesting that it's the heads of the two intelligence agencies that are representing their governments, where I would imagine the Qataris um, act as go-betweens between Hamas representatives and those from the United States and Israel. It'd be very interesting to know what the choreography is, whether or not the US representatives do actually meet directly with representatives of Hamas or not. Uh, I, I don't imagine Hamas representatives meet with the head of Mossad directly, uh, I would imagine the messages are all conveyed third party by by the Qataris. Um, so that's hopefully going to extend the ceasefire for another couple of days. But of course, uh, in addition to uh, the Israelis snatching more and more people from the West Bank, um, the other side of the coin is that if Hamas releases all their hostages, then they have no more bargaining chips. And Correct. the rhetoric coming out of Tel Aviv is still every bit as homicidal and uh, fanatical as it has been. Um, you know, they are determined, well, as are Western media and, you know, senior politicians in Western governments to, to uh, frame all Hamas supporters and everyone else as terrorists. Uh, there's not a resistance organization, according to them. Um, and that the, there's not a government. They, they, they won't even acknowledge, Basil, that there's a government, uh, you know, uh, bought a governing body, a civilian governing body uh, from Hamas in Gaza. Clearly, these are not armed fighters. And that sort of that's the majority of Hamas uh, political party leaders, not the militants. But uh, you're right, Basil. Everything's been kind of, you know, framed in that very narrow sort of terrorism reference. And this is really green lighted, I think, a really awful policy by Israel 
giving them license basically to flatten half the city. What's to stop them from flattening the second half? Well, very good question. I mean, I think uh, Western diplomats have started to peel away a bit from the full-throated support for the retaliation that we saw in the immediate aftermath of October the 7th. Um, believe it or not, Borrell at a meeting of the uh, Mediterranean countries which meet together with the EU, Joseph Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, seemed to indicate that he did not want the bombardment to resume at the end of the ceasefire. Uh, that meeting was in Barcelona yesterday and was also attended by the Jordanians, but significantly the Israelis, who are usually a member as a as a Mediterranean country of that grouping, did not attend. So everybody else can say what they like, the Spanish, the Jordanians, um, Borrell, everybody else, but if the Israelis completely ignore them, then it's not going to make much difference. And the mood music coming out of Tel Aviv is that they can't wait to start bombing again. Um, and uh, I think that bombing may well extend to the south if it's allowed to resume. But as I said, you know, diplomats are peeling away from them. Are they doing so in sufficient numbers? You know, Biden is supposed to have started talking about, you know, his interest in a longer lasting pause. But, you know, the talking heads on American corporate media have been pushing back against that. We're in a very, very fragile situation at the moment where uh, you basically got um, warmongers, bloodthirsty warmongers, desperate for more killing, people who believe that all Palestinians are inherently by nature terrorists, including the children and the babies, and want to kill as many of them as possible and continue with the ethnic cleansing that many say was long planned and is now being enacted. And on the other hand, you've got those very few sort of seasoned diplomats that there are on the world these stage these days saying, you know what, Israel, maybe killing 20,000 is enough for now, you know, maybe, maybe it's time just to sort of call a halt. Of course, uh, Netanyahu has been saying to his own Likud party, <laughs> uh, in an announcement yesterday, I am the only person who can prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state in Gaza, Judea and Samaria after this war. Judea and Samaria, of course, being the term that Zionist expansionists use for the West Bank. So Bibi is claiming that he's the only one that can stop the establishment of a Palestinian state because, of course, you know, even people like Tony Blinken have been talking about a two-state solution again. Exactly. So, all, all the Western leaders are defaulting to that two-state solution talking point as, as the sort of way to kind of placate the conversation, to make it sound yes. like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But the Western media is not covering all of Netanyahu's Likud rants, where he's basically saying there'll be no, is like the, the Ian Paisley sort of uh, yes. card there. There'll be no peace. There'll be no two-state solution. There'll be no Palestinian state. Like, what that doesn't get any coverage in the West. No, that's right. I mean, nor do the sort of genocidal statements by various Israeli leaders. Um, it seems that this immediate displacement 
of Palestinians from Gaza is off the agenda for the moment. The sort of forcing them into Egypt or the sort of sudden mass relocation of thousands of people to Western countries. That has just been paused because of this humanitarian pause. But, you know, we've got to hope that the ceasefire is extended, not just for another couple of days, but indefinitely. Ironically, get this, Patrick, this is extraordinary. Uh, of all the various factions in Netanyahu's ear, it's the Mossad that is the most dovish. It's Mossad that is actually pushing for an extension of the ceasefire. Obviously not people like Smartrich and Ben Gavir or even sort of regular rank and file members of the Likud. I think uh, Mossad realized perhaps that Israel's image in the wider world has absolutely tanked in spite of the supine statements from the likes of von der Leyen, Keir Starmer, Sunak and all the rest of the suits in Western Europe. Sure, sure. I mean, they they should be like having a giant chorus saying that we need peace, we need a ceasefire. I mean, that's what I that's what I was used to growing up is that Western leaders would come together and at least want to be saying the right things internationally. Like we want peace, we want the killing to stop, we need the bombing of civilians to stop. Let's negotiate, bring all parties yes. to the table. But the Israeli position, increasingly over the years, Basil has been. We don't negotiate with terrorists and we're going to bomb Hamas. And now it's we're going to eradicate Hamas. We're going to wipe them from the face of the earth is this sort of maxima, maximalist language that Israel always decries when people are talking about the Zionist regime, when they say, oh, we need to get rid of the Zionist regime, which means regime change, basically, uh, in Israel. Uh, whenever you hear that, they say that's that's a dog whistle for the genocide of all you know people in Israel, which isn't true. But yet we're hearing this language from the Israeli side, like routinely, you know, about this what they're calling now more openly the Palestinian problem. Uh, this is very, to me, very disturbing language because it does have sort of it does echo in history, doesn't it? Well, there is a right between. Um, what Western leaders are saying and what the Israelis are saying. Um, we're simply not at a point where there's any kind of meaningful negotiation at the moment about what the end game is or what that looks like or any sort of pushback against these more extreme Israeli positions which have now become mainstream. So, um, you know, people do seem to be moving more in terms of consensus towards a lasting ceasefire. We hope that it is extended. Um, you know, Western media is still extremely one-sided about this whole thing. Uh, you know, the whole framing of it is that, you know, the Palestinians have hostages, the Israelis have prisoners. Uh, when in fact, I'm not sure if it's the majority, but certainly hundreds, if not thousands of the Palestinians who've been detained by Israel, have been done so without charge. We never find out exactly what it is they're supposed to have done wrong. That means they have to be incarcerated, often for decades, if not years, uh, including children. But the children are referred to as teenagers by Western media, you know, and they're not given names. The, the uh, Israeli hostages, when released, there's a tremendous emotional story behind them uh, 
pictures of them being reunited you know full names are given the backstory turn the whole thing into a major news item and on the other side it's simply um oh and plus uh 30 palestinians were prisoners were released you know the fact that they might be 30 year olds who'd been held without charge for 15 years uh, that's all completely glossed over in fact mike pompeo went even further and said um in, in a tweet uh, uh that uh, the fact that israel has to exchange prisoners terrorists sorry the fact that israel exchanges terrorists for hostages tells you everything you need to know this is good versus evil so uh, you know according to pompeo every uh, palestinian in detention is a terrorist uh in quite what offenses they're guilty of in what court of law they've been charged and found guilty we don't know and pompeo certainly isn't going into that kind of detail it's just more of this endless dehumanization and uh vilification of the whole palestinian cause but but you know there are tectonic plates shifting in global public opinion patrick and um what the whole thing has done is succeeded in putting this you know unresolved issue over the last 70 years back at the top of the news agenda from where last point i'll make it is starting to slip slightly i don't know if you've noticed that but you know news managers in corporate media are starting to sort of say well you know maybe we've had enough of this story what else is happening in the world maybe time to refocus on domestic issues inflation donald trump you know um mm -hmm. that's been you know that story's been going on for so long our viewers are tired of it da, da, da. Uh, uh, the hostage releases have been quite incredible so we'll look at some of these cases there's there's quite a few children uh who've been uh abducted imprisoned without charge under i guess administrative detention for throwing stones or something like this by the israelis held for years in fact one child uh was just released from one of the uh israeli jails and he told an al jazeera reporter that his arm had been broken last week uh after being beaten and tortured by his israeli jailers and he added that they they beat him the day before he was so they knew he was going to be released and they beat him the day before broken fingers and also his arm was broken um and th some of the breakages have been he's been having for over a week and they gave him no medical treatment so the only medical treatment he ever received was by the international red cross just a few hours after his release i mean and, and they're saying this is just standard practice. There's so many cases like this. Uh, and we've seen all these young people yes. come in. Like in some cases, like Basil, just quickly, they they were abducted and taken in as prisoners by the Israelis when they were like, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, held for various lengths of time, be it uh, as, as short as four months and as long in some cases as five years. And they're coming out as young men. So they missed their whole childhood because they're basically kept as political prisoners because Israel thought that they could be a future leader. So they thought they would, uh, you know, take them in, incarcerate them, uh, beat them, 
abuse them in order to sort of beat out this sort of resistance or what they believe or is the radical behavior and uh, prevent them from becoming. In some cases, they will turn some of these into informants, by the way, because of things that happen in the prison, which you can imagine, compromising situations, uh, plus just the cruel, inhumane treatment, torture, psychological damage. Um, it is a sort of ripe environment for uh, you know, getting people to turn them into informants. I listened to one of them speak for two hours uh, on one of the ex-Twitter spaces on Mario's space yesterday, which is the big one of the biggest Twitter spaces. His name was Masab. He's a best-selling author in the U.S., and he's a total Israeli collaborator now, and he's pro-U.S., and he was turned in prison, and he's quite proud of it. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to know the story. Anyway, Basil, I digress. But the, the, these hostage uh, vignettes, if you will, Basil, have been very interesting. It's offered a look into things that we just haven't had any, a, haven't been able to see in the public for, for any of these sort of situations. Go ahead. Well, of the 300 Palestinian names given to Israel for release, 270 were children. 30 were women 235 of the 300 were never convicted of any crime so that's the vast majority it's sort of getting on for 75 80 percent 22 were charged with throwing rocks you get 10 years in jail for throwing a rock in the occupied west bank you know so that gives you some idea of the asymmetry. Um, and with respect to the torture, it's absolutely commonplace. Um, whereas, although I gather conditions were grim for the Israeli hostages in the tunnels in Gaza, uh, suffocatingly hot, not much fresh air, uh, very limited food, obviously. Um, and they were sleeping on plastic chairs and sheets. They weren't tortured. And one image of a woman released the day before yesterday appeared to show her blowing a kiss to the Hamas captor as she was driven away in a car. I don't know if you saw that, Patrick. I did. I did. And uh, this is apparently really controversial. This upset a lot of people uh, on the Western and Israeli side. And is this the, these are the type of scenes, Basil, that they wanted to prevent by making it illegal? Uh, Israel passes uh, an edict, a law saying you can't celebrate, hostage families can't celebrate the return of their family member. And they don't want any media coverage of it because they're afraid of scenes like this. Yeah, that's right. And, um, <laughs> They've even been saying that this is a case of Stockholm syndrome of uh, prisoners falling in love with their captors um, because uh, they are seduced by even the smallest kindness or something, you see. So that's why that, you know, it's sort of, oh, well, she didn't actually want to actually genuinely, the guy was an absolute demon, but, you know, because he gave her some water to drink. That's why she sort of uh, appears to be fond of him. She isn't really. That's that's the <laughs> that's the spin being put on it. Yeah, that's been interesting too, and and also just the testimonies of the Israeli captives saying they were treated well. Um, they were very polite. They gave us everything we needed. We we're allowed to do like you know yes. largely norm, normal as normal as activities as you could do in that situation. Um, and so it seems like I think a lot of those people left with a very different perception of 
Hamas of the situation in Gaza, then when they went into captivity, they might be very interesting spokespeople uh, in the future. You might see some best-selling authors uh, coming out of some of these um, individuals who have been released, maybe that might offer a transformative view of the situation. That has to come from within Israeli society to really see some improvement in this terrible uh, generational problem, Basil. And one hopes that um, through some of these people, if they're allowed to use their voice, if they're given offered free speech uh, in the Israeli part of society there, that they'll be able to perhaps enlighten the world um, on a more humanistic level rather than the binary that's currently being pushed by the Israeli government and, of course, its allies and the mainstream media in the West as well. But uh, we're going to go to break real quick. I'm uh, pleased to be joined here by Basil Valentine to get some Middle East updates, some essential updates of what's happening in Gaza. There's a few other interesting breaking stories here, and I'd like to get Basil's opinion on Elon Musk's photo op visit to the Holy Land. Wow, has it uh, generated a backlash online? We'll talk about that and more. I'm your host, Patrick Kenningson. You're listening and watching TNT. Today's News Talk. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and, uh, you know, to protest climate. But she was all bundled up and I was like, well, wait a minute. Looks awfully cold over there. And uh, were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on? But I want to get serious about this. The fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in and this was telegraphed with those big storms and the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December. And then the U.S. had their famous Snowmageddon. And that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now. And especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather. The most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here in the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, I don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. But remember, there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world for any animal, any disaster. 
search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back. It's a glorious Tuesday wherever you are in the world. I hope you're having a great day, and I hope that the rest of your day is going to be spectacular. Look, we're going to be covering some of the biggest stories internationally in the next hour and a half, and I'm pleased to be joined uh, on the line here by our friend and cohort, our trusted uh, analyst, Basil Valentine, here at TNT Today's News Talk. We've been unpacking some of the salient Issues that are shaping uh, the policy and shaping events in the Middle East. There's been a great pause uh, over the last four days. It's allowed people to catch their breaths. Uh, It's allowed people to be reunited with their family members on both sides of the conflict. There I said it, Basil, both sides of the conflict. And this has been a good uh, and most welcome development. And one hopes that this will be extended. So this uh, ceasefire, by the way, technically Israel has broken the ceasefire um, on not once, not twice, but about five times um, over the last 72 hours. Um, that is well documented. And that includes, uh, there's been firing on Palestinian civilians as they're making their way from north to south Gaza, believe it or not. So obviously the Palestinian resistance factions have issued statements uh, detailing why this is uh, unconscionable behavior on the part of the Israelis. Uh, and you will never hear any of that in any Western media outlet so just saying if it was the other way around you'd be hearing it it would be a sweeping headlines across the new york times and all the rest of it hamas breaks ceasefire so there's our media ladies and gentlemen uh, absolutely uh totally biased and one-sided but that's why we're here to readdress the imbalance the overall imbalance in media coverage and in the discourse basil one of the stories that broke over the weekend that has created a mem storm online has been elon musk has been summoned to the holy land to do an act of contrition that's the only way i can describe it but looking at his tour he's done they have a new thing called the october 7th tour the kibbutz tour and musk has gone around they even have a baby's crib outside like in the parking lot like i can't imagine why that's there but anyway there's a photo of, of bb uh, uh elon and then the israeli uh minister of information from the idf or whatever uh, pointing at this crib and who knows what stories have been spun because these are the same people that spun a completely fake story i will say it again a completely fake uncorroborated never substantiated story of 40 beheaded babies that hamas went on this uh, rapacious rampage and beheaded 40 babies somewhere in a kibbutz in a settlement somewhere never happened so they're still rehashing all this stuff for western journalists for the likes of charles murray and now elon musk going and doing the october 7th tour and it looks like a giant mouse struggle session and i thought they did this already on twitter with elon and these sort of nine rabbis, Ben Shapiro and uh, former PM Omert, I think, was on that call. I thought that was the end of it. No, but he's 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 having to do the tour of Israel, and they've asked him to go and tour Auschwitz. Why? Because he's been wrongly accused of being anti-Semite. So how does this work? You got the richest man in the world, Basil, wrongly accused of being an anti anti-Semite for a throwaway comment uh, that wasn't anti-Semitic on Twitter. X, his own platform, so he's he's innocent, and yet he has to still go and do this tour during during a war 
that is is recognized by multiple institutions as an active uh, crime scene for genocide. And he's with the genociders, the IDF and B Benjamin Netanyahu. This is like the optics on this, Basil, I think are really bad. And he didn't go to the Palestinian side. Surprise, surprise. What do you make of this? Well, I think he's humiliated himself, to be honest, you know, with that ludicrous uh, photo that came out of him peering at this cot with Netanyahu standing next to him. Uh, we are given to understand that one Israeli baby was killed on October the 7th. We're not sure about that. Um, set against the thousands of Palestinian children. So it's really sort of ludicrous and bizarre for this cot to be featured, um, uh, you know, made into some sort of news story. It's interesting that Musk, like Bill Gates, can buy himself access at head of state level. You know, he has no official standing in the diplomatic world at all, but as the owner of uh, arguably the most important, uh, certainly from the point of view of political conversation, the most important social media platform on the planet at the moment, uh, he's elevated himself um, to, you know, that rarefied atmosphere, which just tells us how much of a plutocracy we live in, government by the very rich. Um, obviously, amongst not just free speech advocates, but also fair-minded people uh, on Twitter. He's made himself look ridiculous by cozying up to someone that an awful lot of people regard as a war criminal. You know, let's not forget that majority populations in Western nations, let alone the global South, regard Netanyahu as a war criminal. Now, you know, somehow, you know, various sort of strong arm tactics and this, that and the other. He's been able to uh, derive fealty from von der Leyen, Sunak and all the rest of the Popinjays and Congress. And we know about, you know, the strength of the lobby and all the rest of it. And we've all gone there to bend the knee in Tel Aviv. But Musk didn't have to do that. And it's an absolutely terrible look. It really is. Um, and I'm not sure that his reputation amongst, certainly amongst sort of centrist or the libertarian right, of course, uh, as opposed to the neocon right, or anyone else with a, an independent opinion of what's happening in the Middle East will forgive him in a hurry. But remember, he sat down for a lengthy interview with Netanyahu before October the 7th. Uh, he's got to hit that. And that was his first attempt, I think, um, at uh, healing the rift with, first of all, the ADL, because it was the Anti-Defamation anti League that first got on his case, uh, and he was going to sue them. I don't know if he's still going ahead with that. And he was no, going to force that, them to that's all. That's all done. Yeah, he's suing the media matters, but he didn't. Uh, I don't. I don't know if he made good on his threat to sue the ADL. Withdrew that. I've not heard anything, no updates on that at all since then. No, that's right. That's all gone very quiet. You know, he's, he's suing media matters for certain um, because, of course, his advertising as, you know, on Twitter has been badly affected. Um, so Hugely. nobody can afford that. So now he has to go and pay homage in all the right places, which uh, some people would say is really rather sinister.
to, so so what is what what does Netanyahu want from Musk? Because I I can't for the life of me understand what what Elon Musk uh, wants from Netanyahu. He is clearly he's been summoned or he feels compelled to go there. This is a person that objectively is one of the wealthiest persons in the world. So why would he have to go scraping and bowing? To anybody, there's a lot of billionaires in the world. Do you see any of them scraping and bowing up uh, in Tel Aviv? I see nobody, uh, just some politicians. So, so does, is Elon Musk an aspirational political figure, or does Israel want something from him? And if so, what do you think they want, Basil? Your well, opinion I think on he, this? I think he wants the the nod from Netanyahu to APAC and the ADL. Uh, Musk has shown sufficient contrition for whatever offences he has committed. Um, and uh, you can lift the ban on the advertiser. You know, you can go easy on him now. Uh, let the advertisers back or whatever. That's what Musk wants. I think I can't, you know, why, why else would he be there? What Netanyahu wants is the silencing of pro-Palestinian voices and independent thought on the X platform on Twitter. Netanyahu wants censorship. There's no doubt about mm -hmm. that. He wants only the Israeli perspective to be available to Western audiences because they are well aware that they lost the propaganda war. And for a lot of people, Israel's reputation will never recover from this. Never recover. You know, for an awful lot of people. Israel is now a pariah for the rest of its their lives, its existence, whatever. From here on, there's no going back on that. So, you know, therefore, the propaganda wars, Netanyahu wants every advantage he can get. And if he can get the boss of the biggest social media platform on his side, then, then uh, you know, he'll be very glad to do so. It was interesting. I, I listened to the uh, when he had the struggle session with Ben Shapiro and the ADL, and and there was there was a someone who came in of pro-Israeli person on stage during that big space, and he said, "I'm from X this Twitter com um, tech company, and and we're we're Israeli, and uh, we we do data scraping. I I can't remember data security, whatever." He was saying, "Oh, we'll give you a backdoor. We'll help build you." Uh, some sort of security feature or protect your back door or whatever. I I think this is part of it. I think there are Israel obviously has a, a big tech sector, and I think there's some companies, Israeli companies, in the way that the United States a government was partnering with Jack Dorsey, the previous owner, in order to provide backdoor access, allowed the some U.S. government individuals to read our DMs on Twitter. Uh, they're working with the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the DHS. I mean, there wasn't an agency they weren't working with uh, in order to censor and surveil the uh, private and public conversations on Twitter. Okay, so do you think, uh, knowing that, Israel might it, at the very least want to hand blacklists of accounts to Musk to have deplatformed or shadow banned. There has to be some kind of direct result of this meeting, I would think, Basil. Otherwise, I don't see how that's worth it for, for Israel other than just maybe the photo ops. Well, we had uh, 
Eva Bartlett on the edit with Trish Wood here on TNT a few hours ago. She has 200,000 followers, but doesn't get anything like the sort of purchase on Twitter that you would expect. It doesn't get anything like the traction that 200,000 followers would ordinarily give you. Nor does Trish, or there has uh, over 25,000 followers, something like that. So we wonder the extent to which there is still shadow banning going on on Twitter. Remember, too, that it was only a couple of months ago that that Musk wanted everyone with a blue tick to submit their details to an Israeli cyber security firm. Uh -huh. Remember that? I do. That I was do. coming that, down it, the pipeline. For, bio, for biometrics, right? That's right. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. So I do remember that. a lot of people said, no way are we giving our details to an Israeli firm. And I can't believe that he can possibly. Or any think firm. That that... Yeah, I or can't any believe firm, possibly... for that matter. Yeah, I can't believe he can possibly think that's going to fly after October the 7th. I mean, absolutely to any firm, I agree. But particularly yeah. to an Israeli firm after October the 7th, you've got to be joking, you know. Yeah, biometric data, whether that be, I don't know, was it iris scan, face scan, or um, uh, finger scan. So these are the various forms of, of biometrics used for a unique identification. But that's the that's the feature of the internet where you have to have some kind of a digital ID or license to access the internet, surf, or use these premium platforms. And they are building a sort of walled garden on the internet, Basil, and yes. it's pay it's pay to access and then after it's paid access is going to be id biometric to access and that's going to have your vaccine passport uh wrapped into it this is why they're calling it the green pass or the digital pass as the eu have been trying very hard to push this there's always been a pushback for national id in britain but i notice with this new digital id i don't see the the level of pushback there you remember that used to be held up in the lords every single time even tony blair tried to get one one of those through and failed miserably but not so with this basil two minutes left i'll give you the floor what are your final thoughts on this well yeah i mean it's sort of linked to the whole who pandemic treaty and uh the possible loss of uh, internet anonymity as well nikki haley who is i'm sorry to say in a solid second place it seems now in the republican nomination mm. race she wants to end internet anonymity you've got to use your real name you've got to, to photograph no more sort of avatars no more funky handles or anything like that um uh, and you know look at leo varadkar in ireland after the uh disturbances there at the end of the last week you know if you have a uh, a dodgy meme on your phone, we are going to find you. You know, he was uh, used extremely authoritarian language um, when referring to, you know, basically anything that the government doesn't like, you know, because yeah, of this. Basically. Because of this so-called hate speech nonsense. It just basically means any speech that we hate. Simple as that. Any speech yeah, you know, we hate is hate speech. There's a lot of speech I don't like, but you know, I I I accept that it's there, and we have to debate. 
each other. What I don't like is people that, uh, especially media outlets and government, that are basically spewing unfactual information that's used to incite violence, and that is to me is very dangerous. And I see I'm seeing more and more of this. So that's what I have a problem with: not free speech, but uh, incitement uh, based on fake news. That's my big sort of problem at the yep. moment. Yeah. So it's the thing they accuse all of us of doing out here in the interwebs, but they themselves are doing the most of it. Basil Valentine, thank you very much for joining us on TNT Today's News Talk this week. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. See you again on Thursday. We'll see you and uh, hope you have a great week, Basil. Look, we're going to take a break here. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT Today's News Talk. When we come back, We'll get more. We're going to go over to Russia. We're going to go over to Eurasia, find out what's cooking there between Moscow and Kiev with Arno Devalet and so much more. Just wait. We'll be back in a few minutes. See you in a few. <laughs> 